As some of you know, we've had uh, quite a lot of work done on our house this year, including the addition of a downstairs WC and a kitchen extension as well. And we, we bought the toilet bowl and wash hand basin from a, a large bathroom specialist in the town centre. And uh, it's, it's a good shop. The choice is amazing. The products are excellent. The staff are all good looking and very helpful. But the experience of shopping there made me really sad. Really sad. Well, now, why is that? The reason is because this particular retail outlet is situated in a converted church building. And as we walked around looking at all the products on display, I couldn't help but imagine that huge auditorium decades back as a, as a living church packed with worshippers and the word of God being preached with power and people regularly getting saved and baptised. And now, as I walk around that place, I'm looking at lavatories and taps and shower cubicles. And of course, everywhere you go in the UK, you see church buildings that long ago tragically became retail stores and libraries, museums and community centres and art galleries and concert venues, even mosques and temples. And you have to ask yourself, how did that happen? The churches don't just suddenly die overnight without warning. Usually they slowly become sick and they go into gradual decline and they eventually perish for, I think, one of two basic reasons. Sometimes they get sick and die because instead of sticking with sound biblical truth, they adopt and promote bad teaching, like denying the resurrection or the divinity of Christ or approving same-sex marriage blessings as several churches recently have, as I'm sure you know. Other churches get sick and die because they lose their grip on the gospel of grace and they go all religious. And this, when this happens, you find people perpetuating church traditions without really knowing why. They just say, well, we've always done this. Don't really know why we're doing it. And church then becomes all about keeping things going, keeping the building open. And you find people make you feel guilty and condemned if you don't do more to keep the dreary old show on the road. And this, my friends, is worthless religion. There is nothing attractive about it at all. It's a drag. It's all about pleasing people. It's not about pleasing God at all. And the Bible calls this cycle of wearisome drudgery. It calls it dead works, dead works. There's no real faith involved in it at all. And there's, there's certainly no joy. And, and churches living under grace, by contrast, 
have faith hardwired into their DNA. And so when someone asks, why are we doing this? You never hear, oh, I don't really know. We've always done it. You don't hear that. You're much likely to hear something like this. Why are we doing this? Because we believe we've heard from God and he's calling us to step out now, believing him for what is promised. And as we do that, we, we find that faith is rising all around us. It's an exciting place to be. That's the sort of thing that you're going to hear all the time in a healthy church that's living under grace. You don't find heaviness or guilt or manipulation or pressure. There's no culture of pleasing people. Instead, when grace is taught in a church, people understand that they're acceptable to God by faith and not by a slavish attachment to dead works. Now, my brothers and sisters, this is so vital. It is so fundamental, and it's, it's key. It's important that we understand this here at King's. Well, in Jesus' day, the dead works people were called Pharisees and experts in the law or teachers of the law. And we're going to meet both of these people, both of these groups in today's passage from Luke's gospel. Before we do, before we read it together, let me give you a little bit of background to fill you in. The experts in the law or teachers, sometimes they're called scribes. These guys are scholars, big time. They're religious lawyers. They've got letters after their names. They're really well respected pillars of the community. Everybody looks up to them. Now, the law of Moses in the Bible has 613 commandments. You can fit it into a little booklet like this one. And these commandments, the Jews have to abide by all of them. But for these teachers of the law, 613 laws isn't nearly enough. So they go ahead and they publish massive volumes like this one and they say, oh, but you've got to do all this as well. And they add new rules and traditions to what the Bible says. And then they say it's more important to follow their rules, which they see are easy to understand. It's more important to follow that than the Bible, which they say is hard to understand. So that's the teachers of the law. Now, below them are the Pharisees. Now, these guys are not university educated like the scribes. They are, in fact, what we might call dedicated laymen. And the Pharisees have to choose an expert in the law to be their mentor. So they go around and they hang on his every word. They take notes. They live strictly by all the extra rules that the teachers of the law add to the Bible. And they look down on anyone who struggles to match their religious way of life, to live up to what they do. So how is Jesus, our Lord and Saviour, going to engage with these people? Well, let's read it together. It's Luke 11, verses 37 to 54. This is what it says. When Jesus had finished speaking... 
A Pharisee invited him to eat with him, so he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now, as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you, because you're like unmarked graves, which people walk over without knowing it. One of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. Well, of course, you see, because the Pharisees, remember, are only doing what the experts in the law say they should do. So Jesus replied, and you experts in the law, woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you because you build tombs for the prophets and it was your ancestors who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. Woe to you, experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. When Jesus went outside, the Pharisees and teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to beseech him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. Well, talk about winning friends and influencing people. If you want to know how to lose friends and alienate people, here's how you do it in four simple steps. Number one, get invited to lunch. Number two, spend the entire meal insulting your hosts and calling out their hypocrisy. Then three, when someone protests that what you're saying is offensive to them, tear into them as well. And then number four, walk off. That, my friends, 
is what Jesus does here. And we need to take on board, we need to remember that Jesus reserves his most incendiary and chastening words not for alcoholics and sex workers and junkies and compulsive gamblers and ruffians, but for well-heeled, respectable religious leaders. And six times in this passage, he says, woe to you. It must have brought a bit of a heavy atmosphere down on their fancy dinner party. Now, Jesus also said on other occasions, blessed are you. And as Steve Ward rightly said last month, he spoke more blessings than he did woes. Never forget that. Jesus spoke more blessings than woes. But let's not at the same time gloss over the fact that he did speak both. Well, it all kicks off in verse 38, when the Pharisees show surprise when Jesus doesn't wash his hands before the meal. This is nothing to do with hygiene. That's the way we might read it. But actually, this is all about an elaborate ceremonial ritual that the teachers of the law had devised. And in this great volume of theirs, they specified how much water you got to pour, what vessels you have to use, how you got to pour it, how long the whole thing has to last, and so on and so on. And they did it in their minds to purify themselves from the defilement of having had contact with sinners before they ate. And here's the first reason we've got to lose religion. Religion says that the world basically contains two kinds of people, good people and bad people. That's what religion says. And how do you know who the good ones are? Well, that's easy. P-L-U-D. People like us, dear. We're the good ones. Bad people? Well, they're the ones like them. That's how religion works. And so the Pharisees, they go around praying in a loud voice so everybody can hear. This is what they pray. This is what the Bible says. They said, oh, God, thank you so much that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. And Jesus acknowledges here in verse 42 that they do indeed give one-tenth of their mint and their rue and garden herbs. You can just picture them with a, with a ruler and scissors on the parsley bush, getting exactly 10% of it to give away. And the Gospels tell us that they parade their generosity for all to see. When they go to the temple, they announce their gift with trumpets uh, and when they put their money into the offering, they want to be noticed. They want to be seen and approved of by others. And like most religious people, the Pharisees tend to think that other people are worse than they are. They are what we call in our idiom, holier than thou. So religion says there are good people and there are bad people, and we're the good ones, and you're the bad ones. 
But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says there aren't any truly good people. There aren't any at all except Jesus. There aren't any good people. Instead, there are only messed up people who know they need forgiveness from God and messed up people who think they're just fine without God. And Jesus goes to these religious people in this passage here and he loves them. He sits and eats with them, spends time with them, and he tells them the truth about who they are. And it offends them because they think they're so good. And all the way through the Gospels, they say to Jesus, in effect, how dare you say these things to us? They hate him. They try to trap him all the time. They plot against him. And in the end, they arrest him. They rig his trial and they get him killed. So Jesus goes to the messed up people who think they don't need forgiveness. And that's what happens. He also goes to messed up people, loose women, drunkards, tax collectors, petty criminals. And he loves them too. And he tells them the truth about who they are as well. And they usually say, in contrast to the Pharisees, they usually say, you're right, we are totally screwed up. Our lives are the pits. How are we ever going to get out of the mess we're in? Is there anything that can be done? Can you help Jesus? You can? Great. Where do we sign up? That's the difference. They say that Frank Sinatra, before his deathbed confession, looked really worried. He started to sweat as he looked back on his pretty colourful life, really, and said, this may take more than one priest. Actually, he didn't even need one priest. He only needed one saviour. But at least he didn't pretend he was good when he knew he wasn't. That Jesus is interested in our hearts, not in our outward appearances, in the stuff we project. So he says in verse 39, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside, inside, you're full of greed and wickedness. Imagine Jesus looking intently at you and saying that, how holy you are on the outside, how rotten on the inside. It must have been devastating to hear that. And I plead guilty to being quick to see impurity of heart in other people and slow to cultivate a pure heart myself. How often I need to ask God to show me the Pharisee in me so I can repent of it. I wonder if you're the same. Well, as well as thinking they're the good people, the Pharisees love to parade their self-righteousness for everyone to admire. William Barclay says they basked in the sunshine of their own self-approval. They just crave status and people's fawning admiration. It says in verse 43 that they love, they love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Uh, 
All they care about is looking good and presenting their shiny, clean image for all to admire. And they want you to think they're better than everybody else. But if you were a fly on the wall of their lives, you would see that they are utterly false. And Jesus sees what is in the heart. Well, after that devastating uh, approach to the Pharisees, he starts on the teachers of the law. What's their problem? Jesus says to them in verse 46, you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. And this is the second reason we have to lose religion. Religion loads people down with burdens. What are these burdens? What does it mean when he says burdens? Well, it's all that guilt that's projected onto people. It's all those complicated man-made laws. It's all those dead works keeping the old show on the road. I've been reading a biography this week about the musician Van Morrison. Any Van Morrison fans here? Uh, that's about six of us, I suppose. Well, he, he grew up in East Belfast where they used to chain up the swings and roundabouts, put chains around them in the park on Sundays because it was the Lord's Day. And God forbid that you might have some fun on the Lord's Day when you should be in church or at home reading your Bible and saying your prayers. That's what the teachers of the law were like. See, religion says if you give up drinking, if you tell no more lies, if you stop all that swearing, if you cut out the excess in your life, if you brush yourself up and become a better person, then God will love you. That's what religion says. But grace says, no, no, God already does love you. It does not depend. God's love for you does not depend on you becoming a good person first. And the Bible says that God showed just how much he loved you by sending his very own dearly loved son to live for you, to die for you, to rise again for you and to come and live in you by the Holy Spirit. The Bible says this, God demonstrates, God, God proves his own love for us in this while we were still sinners. That means when we were still all over the place, when our lives were messed up, just think of your life. Think about your life as low and as far from God as it's ever been. It was precisely then that Christ died for us. That is grace. That is the gospel. So religion says, God will love me if I make myself good enough. Grace says, God loves me so much already. And if you are in any doubt this morning about how much God loves you, just look at the cross. That is how much God loves you. Well, religion is like me turning around to my children when they were young and saying to them, OK, kids, listen up now. This is a list here of all the things that are so important to me. So I hope you're taking notes. 
first of all, I want you to tidy your room every day. You need to work extra hard at school because at the moment the reports aren't good enough. You need to share your toys with your friends, clean your teeth at least three times a day, wash your hands before you eat. And if you do all those things and more, then I will be your daddy. And if you don't, I won't love you anymore and I will leave you. Now, my kids always knew, or at least I hope they did, I did try to tell them that they could put custard in my bed. They could dip my books in the toilet. They could write graffiti on the kitchen walls. And to be fair, they knew I would not be all that happy about it. But they knew, crucially, I would never, ever stop being their dad or stop loving them if they did. So how much more is God absolutely committed to us, to loving us, to staying our father if we are his children, to picking us up when we fall? That is the gospel of grace. And it's simple. A child can understand it. We are loved because he is our father. Now, the teachers of the law, on the other hand, the religious people, make it all confusing and difficult. They take something simple and they make it hard. So Jesus says in verse 52, woe to you experts in the law because you've taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered because the door's locked and you have hindered those who were entering. Now beware preachers who sound so clever, make it so difficult and convoluted that ordinary people just give up reading the Bible because they feel they're not clever enough. That's what the teachers of the law did. And the last thing about religion, and very briefly I'm coming towards a close now, is this. Religion always resists the Holy Spirit. This is the third reason we have to lose religion. Religion always resists the Holy Spirit. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit is like the wind. You don't know where the wind came from. You don't know where it's going. You certainly can't control it or put it in a box. And when the Holy Spirit comes in power, you never really know what might happen. It's all out of control for us. John Wimber used to say, church isn't about being neat and tidy. That's what the graveyard is for. He said life is oftentimes found in mess. The nursery is messy and noisy, but that's where all the life is. Now, Jesus says here that these experts in the law, they vehemently oppose any move of God until it's long gone. They keep it all nice and tidy until it's over. They don't like the move of God because it's messy and because it's noisy. And then, when the danger is past, they hypocritically build memorials to it. I thank God for leaders like Mike Pilavachi, J. John, John Stott, Nicky Gumbel, and many more, all of them Anglicans who have greatly blessed the church throughout the world. But in the 18th century, the Church of England systematically opposed one of its own vicars, John Wesley. 
he was banned from every parish pulpit in the whole land. And so he ended up having to preach in the open air instead. And when he did, thousands were converted to Christ. There were signs and wonders in the streets. Countless people were baptised in the Holy Spirit and hundreds of churches were planted. It was an amazingly powerful, awesome move of God. And the Church of England of the day denounced all of it. But now there's an ornate memorial to John Wesley in Westminster Abbey. And even then, they managed to get his birthday wrong on the chiselled marble. And I want to say that it's important for us to understand that we, we must never think that that could never happen to us. Opposing a move of God and then building a memorial afterwards, it could. It could. And I want to end with this illustration. I was on holiday in central France some years ago and I noticed that in some places the River Loire is much reduced from what it had been in the past. And you see dozens of little lakes and pools. They're a good stone throw from the wide sandy riverbanks. And these pools are only there because a river has flowed there in the past when it was higher. The pools are where the river used to be. But the pools dry out now in times of drought. And then there's only the river left. And the pools, well, they're great. People just paddle in them and they splash around. But the pools are just a shallow inheritance of the past. I started out today by talking about churches that die. Some churches start to die when they're content to live off a legacy of the past. And I ask you, are you satisfied today with what God did years ago in your life? Is neat and tidy religion enough for you now? Are the shallow pools, these memories of yesterday's faith, is that enough for you these days? Is it sufficient? Or do you long for that running, flowing, bubbling, living water that you only experience in the rushing river of what the Holy Spirit is doing now? Okay, let's, let's come before the Lord. Let's pray.